Grief is the price we pay for love. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my shit shows. For any new listeners, I'm Andrea. I am a shit show. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm a recovering codependent. I don't think I've ever actually been in a healthy romantic relationship in my entire life. However, I am confident that one day I will because of the healing and recovery that we discuss on this podcast. So today we are joined by friend, fellow shit show, Heather Johnson, and we have something for everyone. We have mommy issues. We have daddy issues. We have toxic relationships. We have alcoholism. We have sobriety and we have turning our grief into purpose. So I specifically wanted to have her on to talk about trauma related to fertility issues. So as you'll soon hear, Heather experienced several miscarriages that were extremely traumatic for her, but those experiences led her to discover her higher calling. So she recently launched Isla May. So this is a nonprofit that provides women with spa services and mental health support after a loss or a miscarriage or illness with the goal being to create a safe space for grief and self-care during the healing process. So it's just a really beautiful example of how through great pain comes great change and how through great pain comes greater purpose, which is a message that I am trying to exude in this podcast. And so I was talking to my mom a week or two ago, and it was right after the shit show retreat. And she was asking me about that. And she told me just how proud she was of me. And I'm not much of a a crier, but I got overwhelmed with just this intense feeling of, of gratitude and love. And I was crying and I don't cry. I wish I could cry more, but I hardly do. And what I was saying to her is, you know, I can't believe how about how I just experienced so much pain. I was in so much fucking pain. And I'm blown away at what has come from that. So if you're going through it, if you are in a lot of pain, can you hold just the tiniest bit of space that through your pain, something really beautiful lies on the other side of that pain. So let's get the damn show on the road. But first, let's talk about how you need to damn the join Patreon. So Patreon is a community for us shit shows. I host three weekly Zoom support groups. Y'all, these are some damn good meetings, okay? There is a shitload of recovery and healing in this group. So how about you do what these people who I'm about to name did and damn the join Patreon. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Tracy, 
Tracy. Oh, two Tracys in a row. So we got Tracy with an I-E, and then we have Tracy with a Y. James, Maggie, Carrie, Leah, Jake, Carly, Davina, Christina, Carissa, Kimberly, Ryan, Betsy, and Alana. Thank you, shit shows. How about the rest of y'all follow suit, okay? Uh, you can also... Uh, follow me on the old TikTok, on the old Instagram, at Adult Child Pod. And whatever you do, you need to give me a damn five-star rating on Apple, on Spotify. That is the price of admission to listen to this podcast. So thank you. I must be strong and carry on well, it was my pleasure to introduce Heather Johnson, founder of the new nonprofit Isla May. Hi. Hi. Trigger warning, y'all. We're going to be talking about some heavy topics. So we'll just see where this goes. So where to begin? You know, I think one thing that would be good to share for people is that your journey to sobriety, you shared with me that a lot of people have said to you, Oh, I didn't even know you had a drinking problem. <laughs> and I think that I think that there's probably some people listening that um could could benefit from from hearing, I don't know if you want to call it high bottom, but from hearing kind of your experience to sobriety where you weren't like a homeless person under a bridge drinking out of a paper bag. No, it was actually the complete opposite. I had achieved more than I ever thought possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd always dreamed of being a teacher. So I went to school, got a undergrad and a master's from University of Florida. What did you want to teach? I was elementary ed and then I got my master's in special education and then got a job right out of school. Uh, ended up getting pregnant and divorced, married and divorced like within the first two years um, after grad school. And so my drinking in college, I, I worked full-time. I was always very self-sufficient. Did you drink in high school? A little bit. I mean, yes, I got, I got drunk. Um, yeah, the first time I got drunk was actually in uh, Cancun. I was 15. I had just gotten my learner's permit. Actually, I don't think I had even gotten my learner's permit. And my best friend went to Cancun on a family vacation with me. My mom let us get a separate room and we met college boys at the resort. We snuck out of the hotel room and proceeded to take a cab and get pretty drunk. Um, I threw up in the bar after a couple drinks. And then actually the college guys, I mean, they knew that I was 15, but they even after they left Cancun and nothing physical happened. Like, I mean, I was super innocent and ridiculous. It was the first time I was drinking. I'd never smoked a cigarette. I had never done it. I was a goody two shoes. And um, the guys called my hotel room from the U S like just bizarre. They were clearly dorks hanging out with a with 15 15 year old. I have a story I don't think that I've told on the podcast. So when I was kind of similar, I was, I think I was 15 or 16. My parents got me my own hotel room. And so I 
snuck out. Well, I guess it's not sneaking out, but I went out one night and um, went down to the hotel bar and met some guys, drank with them. Then I smoked weed with them. And I think that this was like during a time where I was getting drug tested and I hadn't smoked weed in a while. And so then I smoked and I got super, super, super fucking stoned. And so I was like headed back up to my hotel room and I had my room key card. And for some reason I was like biting it. Like, so I like had like the whole like room key card in my mouth and I was biting it. And then when I went to get back into my room, it wouldn't work. And so then I had to go down to the lobby and I was like, yeah, my room key won't work. And I hand it to them and they're like, it has bite marks on it. And I was like, oh, it's my friend's dog. But it was like so clearly human, <laughs> like, a, like a human <laughs> like bite. <laughs> so then they finally gave me my room key. Yeah. So oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah no, my parents didn't even, I mean, they knew that I'd met boys and the boys were calling the hotel for me from the U.S. It was so bizarre, um, but nothing happened. You know, I was luckily, I mean, thank God, because we snuck out every night and we're meeting random boys. Like I, I tell most, I tell everybody this, that relationships and boys were probably my first mm-hmm. drug of choice. Mm-hmm. I really, really sought relationship and love. You know this, but my biological father, Uh, was never really in the picture. He was abusive to my mother, drug addict, alcoholic. And so my mom divorced him when I was a baby and then married my stepdad. My stepdad and I, we just had this weird kind of relationship where he never gave me much attention. I remember him doing like Indian guides with my sister, who's three years younger than me. And, you know, playing softball with her guides it was like where they would go camping and you know i don't know like i said father daughter type Uh things so he made that was his daughter yeah and you were the okay you were just the step Mm -hmm. so he made a huge effort you know to do things and bond with and it, it just was really clear that the house was divided like i was mom's favorite And um, my sister was dad's favorite. And so mom protected me from dad and dad protected my sister from mom. And so that was the dynamic growing up. And I really just, I was terrified of my dad. And when you say your dad, you mean your stepdad? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My dad, I, he ultimately ended up adopting me when I was eight years old. There was, there was always this desire of fitting into the family. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I had a different last name than my mom and my sister and my dad, it it set me apart and it made me feel because I I would hear that I was the or Skinner is what they would call my dad. Skinner was the sperm donor. Mm-hmm. And so from a very young age, I learned that my dad was bad. He was just the sperm donor. you know, and I didn't want to have any association with him. So he let your mom left him when you were a baby. And did you ever like have any sort of contact with him or relationship? Um, (laughs) the only contact that I had, he never paid child support. So there was always this whole, like, he was always running from the law as far as money goes. The one time that I talked to him was when I was trying to get permission for my 
stepdad to adopt me. Mm. So there was a whole process where he couldn't adopt me for so many years of abandonment. Like I had to be considered abandoned before that mm. happened. And is that, that's something you were aware of, like that verbiage at eight years old? Yeah. Mm. And so I did talk to him one time and I remember, and it's, it's so sad now to hear this, like the way I was so self-critical, but the one time I talked to him, he was like, I love you. I love you. I'm so sorry. You know, I remember this conversation right before my dad adopted me. And I said, if you loved me, why have you never sent me a birthday gift mm. or a Christmas gift? And so my mom was such, that was her love language. She was a, she is a gift giver. And so it took me a long time. Like as soon as that came out of my mouth, I was so ashamed and so embarrassed. And I remember just crying and crying and crying saying, I had one chance to talk to my dad. And that's what I said. And I was, you know, that was really all I can remember from that conversation was that I just wanted my other dad to adopt me. And I couldn't understand if this guy said he loved me, you know, why I didn't see him or know him. So you had that thought, like, I mean, like this wasn't something in hindsight. This was like in the moment after you got off. God. Yeah. And then it was like the happiest day of my life going to those judges chambers and getting the same last name as my siblings or my sister and my mom and dad. Which probably didn't last for very long. Well, I always wanted to be like them. I wanted to be a part of, and I thought that that would make me feel loved. And it, you know, it, it did enough, like, because I, I would, I heard so many ugly things that when teachers would call me Heather Skinner, like my mom had to go tell the teachers, like she's triggered when you call her Heather Skinner, because, and again, it's because they had talked so ugly about my biological dad that me having that same last name was like awful. And so I, I was such a perfectionist that I was just constantly trying to earn the love of my stepdad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that didn't happen. I didn't realize that until years later, <laughs> lots of therapy and, and sobriety actually. So yeah, my daddy issues started coming out real early, like at 15 when I got drunk and then they continued on um, a lot. And actually once I started drinking, um, that was how my dad and I would bond my stepdad and I. Um, And so my 18 year old, and she knows this and it just is what it is because there was my family there's no secrets. There's no shame. You're just shamed. If that makes sense. <laughs> I guess that's better than the don't talk rule. It's just, yeah, there's let's talk, but let's shame. <laughs> it, it's exactly that. So, you know, I was finishing up grad school and, um, my, you know, like I said, my dad and his best friend and, you know, they were all anyway, long story short at the wedding, I was going to be um, Justin's date at my sister's wedding. Mind you, my sister was getting married to somebody 
that we really didn't approve of. She was six months pregnant. And um, so we have this wedding and I was set up by my dad during a phone conversation where they're out partying and I didn't go partying um, it was at a football game because I had so much work to do for grad school. I couldn't leave where I was to go to this football game. And so they were hounding me and my dad said, well, Justin's going to be your date to Holly's wedding. So we go to the wedding. I'm drinking a lot. And my dad says, and I don't remember this, but I know that it was said because it's so funny that he said this. Um, if you keep um, handing her harps, so that was the beer that they had on tap, uh, you're going to get lucky tonight. Mm. And he said that to my ex-husband. And I don't remember any of this, but it, Mallory was conceived that night. Mm. And he, my stepdad was a total jerk to me. Like, like I was the biggest, you know, I, I heard lots of bad names, you know, what a, what a whore I was and how ashamed I should be of, you know, I was very much shamed about the whole situation. Um, and that's, that's like the trajectory. That's like a perfect example of how my relationship was like all throughout college. And then even until I got sober is he would go out with me. He would pay for alcohol. We would all get drunk. He would encourage behavior, certain behaviors, you know, flirt with my girlfriends, all of this weirdness. And then he would shame me and not talk to me and call me names. Like, he would be abusive. I probably started drinking around 18 or so. So from about 18 in college, actually, I think it really started. He left my mom um, after I left my, that was another gem. When I left my ex-husband, he left my mom and said, I realized what a, what a coward I was. And he used more crude words. Like if you could leave uh, Justin with a two-year-old mm. and start over, you know, what kind of P-U-S-S-Y am I if I stay um, with, with your mom? mom? What was their relationship like? Like, was there, was it chaotic the whole time? Terrible. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember always wishing that they would divorce and that she would leave him, but my mom was completely reliant on my dad's money. Mm-hmm. My dad you know, we were not rich, but we were comfortable. Uh, and my mother, like I said, she's a gift giver. She's kind of a hoarder in a way. Like it's not, you know, on the TV show level, but she likes to get sales and she will buy anything and everything. Like if she thinks you, you like, uh, this certain nail polish, if she sees it on sale, She's met you once and, oh, I bought this uh, nail polish for Andrea because I saw and it looked like the nail polish that she had on the other day. Great. Let me meet her. (laughs) (laughs) She really is like so generous. And and that's some of the the beauty of like what I've gotten from my mom. Like uh, my mom is very loving. But does it come from a place of, is she trying to buy love? Yeah. Very, I mean, yeah. It, and it's her abandonment issues too. Mm-hmm. And um, 
it, it took me a really long time because I idolized my mom, you know, when I was little. And so as I got older and realized that there was some unhealthiness, it was, um, that was difficult because I already had hated my dad, you know? Uh, and so realizing that my mom took, had a part in that hatred, uh, mm -hmm. was really a hard thing growing up to, to kind of see that my mom was not perfect. Yeah. Cause I think it talks about in the big red book or another book, but just how it's so much easier. It's so scary. You already have these feelings towards your dad and to also see your mom for who she truly is. Like that's like so much more scary than, you know, it's easier for us to believe that we're the problem than to think like the, the one other person that's responsible for your safety and care, you know, is also unloving. So we just put it on ourselves. What was that aha moment for you? There were many, um, you know, one of the things that I remember, and this is just some random thing, but I remember she always was jealous of my friendships. Mm -hmm. So if I, cause I would cling to people, you know, like I would get this best friend and like, that was my person and I loved them like a sister. And, and you know, there was, there was that need for, you know, like I said, with boys, I kind of had done that in childhood too, with like best friends. That was my person. And my mother would always be uber critical of every person, like to the nth degree. And she would say these nasty, disgusting things about my friends. And, um, one of the things that she said, um, was about this, this girl named Sundi and Sundi lived in a foster home mm. and I just loved Sundi and my mom would let me go to, you know, she was pretty protective. So she had to meet all my friends and, mm -hmm. and I got the feeling that she was comfortable with me going over to Sundi's house because Sundi's foster parents were like white and had a good home you know? And, uh, but she warned me, well, you know, black girls will go back to their, you know, their roots. That's just how they are. Even though she's, she's raised in a white family, mm. you know, you're, you're always going to have to watch your back or something like that. And I remember feeling sick when she said that, like, I was like physically ill when I was like, my mom's a freaking racist and my mom ugh. and and the first fight we got into see i told you mm. and that's the way she was about my relationships too she she would egg on like i fell in love um at like 15 16 my first love and he was from this great family he was wealthy he played tennis <laughs> you know, he he just adored me and she would say things like he, um, his family is never going to accept you because we're not rich like them and you don't play tennis and we're not wealthy. And she would continue to say like, well, he's just more into his rich friends. Like you're never going to be part of that. Like she would just breed that insecure self doubt. Um, and like 
hatred of people that weren't like us. It was either, you know, because they were less than us or because they were better than us. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized like my mom doesn't really approve of anybody. Cause she doesn't approve of herself. What do you know about her upbringing? Um, I r- remember her, her grandfather was an alcoholic that my grandfather took care of. So he was still alive when I was younger and he always smelled like smoke and he always smelled like alcohol. And he, he I just remember he stunk and uh, my grandparents took care of him like until he died. And my grandparents did not drink at all because of that. Mm-hmm. I knew that there was some mental illness. Um, I think one of my maternal grandmother's um, parents shot themselves for something. There's mental illness like in my mother's side of the family. Like I know a lot of the attention went to, uh, we have a mentally ill uncle who was diagnosed with like bipolar schizophrenia and had tried to commit suicide multiple times. So I think a lot of the attention went to, and um, one of my aunts was, was like brutally raped Mm. um, at a young age. And like my uncle was like held at knife point and, as that happened. So there was a lot of trauma that happened, um, during childhood. I think overall, I know that my grandfather had a bad temper and it was pretty ugly about, you know, all I hear is like, go do something with your goddamn hair. Cause my mom had like really curly hair. And, uh, so I've heard that he was pretty, pretty rough on the kids Mm -hmm. and that there was trauma, you know, from a young age. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're just going all over the place. <laughs> so you start drinking. So you get divorced. That didn't, it, last, didn't last long. No, no. I, I thought that it was like the right thing to do. It was like, okay, this is going to settle me down. This is going to, this is what I'm supposed to do. You know, you get pregnant, you've finished college, get married this is the life that God has set for you and you'll be happy if you do this. Well, I wasn't in love with him. He was a really nice guy. Like what he said to me when I told him that I was pregnant is he said, I feel like I've ruined your life and hit the lotto at the same time. Wow. So sad. (laughs) I'm trying to think like, I think I would be like, I'd be like, oh God, he really loves me. <laughs> I feel like that's something I wish a guy would say. <laughs> well, he was so, he was so good to me, you know, like flowers and anything you want. And he just did. He was, he was a good guy. He is a good guy, mm-hmm. but he has his issues. And, and I just wasn't in love with him. And so, yeah, it didn't work out. I, I was so ugly. I mean, that's another part of my story is that I, was very um, abusive to to men. Like in my drinking, if I was in a relationship, like it would just, the devil would come out. Like, I hate you for X, Y, Z, and I'm going to make your life hell. Mm-hmm. And I knew I didn't want to raise a kid like that. So I didn't know how to be in a relationship. But then, <laughs> so I thought um, I could get out of that relationship and find the right person 
And then that way I could have kids. That was another thing. It was like, I did not want to have another child with this man, you know? And he was such a nice guy that I was like, I just have to do it. Like I pulled the trigger, you know? And so I did. And then I went into the next not so great relationship and was very insecure, very alcoholic, um, you know, all kinds of grossness. And then this was when my dad left my mom. So then we're drinking together and just in this really sick, like now I'm finally getting the attention of the dad that I've always wanted. Mm. And, um, and it was just this roller coaster of like going out and dating different guys. And my dad was in a really bad, he, he actually married a woman right after my mom because they partied together and she was just awful. Yeah. He would come sleep on my couch when they would get into it and have some physical altercation where the cops were called. And I mean, it was just mass chaos. Yeah. Talk about an enmeshed nightmare. Yes. relationship with yeah talk about a trauma bond <laughs> yes 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 and so I was dating real guys that did not make me feel safe mm. you know I was dating guys that were like my dad where they were confident and physical or and mentally abusive mm-hmm. you know in, in terms of just um overly confident and they were going to do what they were going to do and if I was insecure about it, then that was my problem. Yeah, you I'm know? sure nobody listening right now can relate to that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's yeah, like I mean, a, I, that's the soup du jour for a lot of people listening. I would find like <laughs> adult, like I was living with a guy, and you know he was golfing, and I was watching his kid, you know, and I was getting super crazy, and then I'd find like on his. Um, on his Amex card or whatever that he was on adult friend finder, you know, like, and he was traveling, he was, he was this traveling sales guy, like had to have the nice car. I mean, mind you, when I met him, he was sleeping on an air mattress in a really nice condo, but they did not have one stitch of furniture. So, I mean, like that was the, this wasn't the married boss or the married coworker. This was not the married coworker. Okay. No, that was my, um, my bottom that was that was pretty much a bottom that I had yeah so you had talked about the um the high bottom that I had a lot of it was really low in terms of relationship wise and just feeling very empty and wanting to have this family wanting to have this certain life that I had dreamed of and not being able to be in relationship with men Mm -hmm. and having that broken picker And so the last relationship I was in before I got sober, this district finance manager, I was working for UPS. He was like, I aming me on our, you know, company laptop, you know, work stuff and, and pursuing me. And I had just bought a house. Uh, My first house, it's in San Marco, it was a cute little bungalow. So I'm feeling really good about myself. I'm making more money than I've ever had. I have this house now. It's cute. It's right across from like the perfect school that my daughter can go to. So I'm like, um, things were good. Things were good. Well, this man offers to help me like put ceiling fans up, you know, how can I help you? And he had had older daughters. So it wasn't like totally off the wall. Like we worked together, 
I was attracted to the guy because of my daddy issues. And my dad was not somebody, you know, he would drink with me, but put up a, he wasn't putting up no fan. He wasn't no handyman. And that's exactly it. You know, my dad never cut my yard, never cut. He didn't even cut the grass at our own house. Like my dad was never someone who would serve, you know, he was a taker. And so when this man like showed up, like, Hey, I'm going to fix this and I'm going to show up with mulch, you know, in flowers and (laughs) flower beds. You know what I mean? Like that's, and then like, you know, after he put up the ceiling fan the next morning, he shows up bright and early with a coffee and donuts for me, you know? And so your love language is ceiling fans, mulch, coffee, and donuts. All of that, you know, just, just like show. And again, it makes sense because my mom was a giver. My mom was so generous. And so it was like, like, I think my love language really is like acts of service. But I do think that there is this element of gift giving with the acts of service. Like if you're thinking about me and being thoughtful and then trying to figure out what I would need or want, like that's like a double whammy for me. So this guy knew he read my book (laughs) and um, pursued me. And he had just gotten out of this relationship, even though he was married technically, but the housing market was terrible. And so she needed, she had health issues and she needed his insurance. And so he had lived upstairs, you know, once one of the daughters had gone to college, he had his own room up there. Well, you know, I wasn't completely stupid. I was like, well, if, if this is all true, then your kids should be able to see me like, you know, and, and this can't be forever, but I was willing to accept it. Was he keeping you compartmentalized? Not really. No, No, that's the whole thing. Like he was at my house after work. So I'm like, where does your wife think you are? And and he kept convincing me like we, she has a boyfriend. I had a girlfriend. Like I'm just out of this relationship. He's just out of a relationship. That's not his wife. Right. Okay. Got it. So, and they had already been divorced twice. He and his wife at that point. Twice? Yeah. And were they still married? So they would have to get divorced. They had married again. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So they had, there was a third time they got married. Okay. Before me, hold on. Maybe they had only gotten remarried once. So they had been married twice when, when it was me. Okay. So, so it was all this chaos. You know, he takes me to meet his family. I'm with his girls. His girls are spending the night at my house. Like, He's, he eventually like moves in with me. He does divorce this woman after. Well, didn't you give him an ultimatum? Yeah. 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 I I gave him, I mean, too many, way too many, but he wouldn't take no for an answer. I ultimately, the only reason I was able to get out of that relationship was, was getting a restraining order. And, uh, and he broke the restraining order and was arrested multiple times. Like he put his job in jeopardy because they were arresting him at work. Was he physically abusive? There was a couple times. I wouldn't say that he necessarily initiated physical stuff, but yes, there was enough. Um, there was enough evidence, um, where yes, he had like in one of our fights had, uh, like ripped, ripped a nightgown off of me so hard that like I bruised and there was conversations with his then wife or ex-wife. I don't know what she, where she was at that point, but where she had communicated 
about his violent tendencies mm. um, in a text message or in an email. So it was in writing. That's how I was able to get the restraining order because I had proof of one, the conversation uh-huh. with his wife. When, when in a relationship did he um, turn like how far into it? When did it start? To, did he start to become abusive? Um, the more pressure I was putting on him to leave her and to marry me. Um, I don't really know exactly time frame probably about halfway through i think we we did this dance for about two years so mm-hmm. i mean i think it was probably around six months that the that i started seeing the lies and that things weren't adding up and you know the phone bill and then i was realizing that he was talking to his wife on the phone on his work phone like all day every day like and his wife would send me like their her phone bill and to prove to me that he was lying to me. Did she, was she mad at you? She said things like, um, honey, you're not the first, you won't be the last. He always comes back to me. And, um, so she, she was, you know, I mean, there were times where she was calling me his blonde little Barbie and he did that's, that was actually the first thing that I really, um, started not liking is, he wanted to get my nails done. He wanted me to get professionally get my hair done. He brought um, pantyhose and uh, heels and like some dresses that I guess I think they came from his wife's closet. And I was like, what the F? And um, so I started getting crazy. But then he would work his magic and you know, show up with a, a dishwasher. <laughs> I mean, like mulch. Crazy. <laughs> crazy. And so how old is your daughter at this point? She was about seven. Mm-hmm. So no, 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 no. She would have had to have just been five. Mm-hmm. She would have been about five, five or six. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was, she liked him. He took her to the house that the ex-wife lived at and like, that was another huge fight, you know, like what in the God's green earth are you thinking taking her here? And he would go cut the grass at his house, even though he's living with me. I'm like, no, no. And it wasn't until his ex-wife had told me, have you noticed that, you know, the two oldest girls don't come around anymore? And I was like, she's and it. It hit me like she's, she's, telling the truth this time. Um, she said, uh, Danny walked in and, uh, we were having sex and she, and she knew that they were both in relationship, committed relationships. And she liked both the other man, you know, she liked the man and she liked, they liked me. And so her they were like, parents were having sex and her parents were having sex in their house. Mm-hmm. And she's like, that's why, because because we've put them in this bad position. That's why they don't come to your house anymore. Cause they feel like, um, they, they know. You're fucking having regular lines of communication with this woman. <laughs> she was crazy. It was a crazy situation that I didn't know how to get out of. Like I said, it really did take him being arrested multiple times. I mean, he divorced her. 
I mean, like his kids were literally sleeping at my house. I was going to his family, like his parents' house. I had Easter with his family. I had Christmas with his family. Um, it, it was a real relationship to me as sick and twisted. And, and he was like godly. Like we would go to church together. We would go to celebration church together mm-hmm. with his kids. Mm-hmm. And he would say, God bless you. God bless you and bless you. And I mean, he was this religious man, like upheld, blah, blah, blah. But turns out like after the fact, I learned, like I talked to another one of his women that he, he had another, like a millionaire and he, he was sending me pictures trying to get me to come to her condo that he was staying at in Daytona. Like I wasn't the only one. Mm -hmm. He had multiple women that he was lying through his teeth and sleeping with. And so when that ended, that's kind of when your drinking spiraled. Exactly. Yeah. I just went, you know, that was my crutch. Like I deserve this. I work hard. I'm lonely. Uh, Clearly I'm the problem here. So I can't date anymore. And I'm just lonely and sad and heartbroken. I remember thinking that I was going to die during that breakup. Mm-hmm. Like, because it was the dream. Like for me, I was always in love with the dream. It was never anybody. Real. And so, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about this if we get into the miscarriage stuff, but it's, it's like, that's the, cause reality is hard. <laughs> you know? And so I, I remember thinking now that I know who he is, maybe I could just accept it because then I could accept the gifts and I could accept whatever love that I was just, there was just this hole in me and it it just, I I was empty. I was just empty at the end of that relationship. Mm. And I heard my daughter this was probably six months a year and I'm starting to drink more. I can't stop. Like I had always been able to stop for a diet. Like, Oh, I want to lose 10 pounds. I'm not going to drink for a month. And so I started drinking more, drinking more, drinking more. And then I tried to stop. And, you know, I wasn't like a drink in the morning kind of girl, but I was a 10 o'clock at night, like once the baby's in bed, you know, Mallory's in bed, she's again, not a baby, but then I can drink my wine. And it started out with wine and then the wine wasn't working. And so then it was vodka because it was cheaper and easier. And I would dump out whatever I had that night. I'd say, okay, this is the last, I'm not going to do this again. And then the next night I couldn't fall asleep. So that was what I would do. And, uh, So eventually I woke up one day and I was like, I cannot do this. Oh, and it was Mallory saying to her friend, I overheard her saying, when I grow up, I want to be just like my mom. Mm. And I was like, your mom can't be in a relationship. Your mom is miserable. Your mom is drinking every night and can't stop. Um, And I, that like resonated in my heart, like for, for a couple months. And I would I would rehear that like over and over as I'm doing these things that were just self hurtful, you know, like hating myself. What a blessing to have overheard that. Yeah. I woke up one day and I said, she's going to, she's, she's going to know soon. She's going to figure me out. 
She's going to figure me out just like I figured out my own mom. And I, this is the first time I've said that, but it's, it's the truth. Mm. You bringing up that question. Um, that's what it was. Is like, I remembered how traumatized I was realizing who my mom was. And I, and I didn't want my daughter to have that. Mm. And so I woke up one day and was like, I think, and I called my dad of all people. <laughs> and I'm like, I think I have a problem with alcohol. And he's like, no, you don't. You're overreacting. No, you just need to calm it down a little bit. And uh, that was the last time I drank. I I literally woke up like every other day. But one day I woke up and was like, I can't, I can't live like this anymore. And I never drank again. What, and you just celebrated how many years? 11, 12? 10. 10. 10. That's amazing. Yeah. 10 fucking years. Did you... I mean, I know you say you related right away, but was there, did you struggle with really coming to terms with whether or not you were an alcoholic? Yes. I, well, you know what? I knew I was an alcoholic between my biological father being an alcoholic between my mother's side. I knew that there was like some, a history. My mom also really likes uh, prescription drugs. And so Okay. I think I knew that there was just a, <laughs> As a <do> I. <laughs> <laughs> there. I knew that there was a chance. Um, the issue for me was not that I was an alcoholic. The issue was whether my life was unmanageable mm. Mm. because I had thought that I had been managing it well. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, so step one is we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives were unmanageable. And there's certain people who can clearly see that they're powerless over alcohol, but they can't come to terms with that their life is unmanageable. And then for other people, it's the opposite. They can clearly see that their life is unmanageable, but they have a hard time grasping that they're powerless over alcohol. Once I heard that, that, um, and really embraced the fact that I never wanted to just have one drink, that mm-hmm. it wasn't the first drink that got me drunk, mm-hmm. that it was, or that it really was the first drink that got me drunk because I couldn't, I never wanted to, Mm -hmm. I never wanted to drink like a normal person. When I started drinking, it was always, everybody else could stop around me. I would see people and, and I could contain it. This, this was another thing. Like the management is like, if I went to a work function, I'd only drink a couple drinks, but then I would go back to the room and make sure I had enough alcohol to finish myself off. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality was um, nobody, people did see me messy plenty of times, but I could contain it, you know, in, in situations. But the reality was that was pretty miserable for me. Like, why would you just have a drink or two? Like that just blew my mind that that's what still blows were. my mind. What the yeah. fuck is the point? No, I think that that's, you know, that's like one definition of alcohol, alcoholism that I've heard. It's that when you have that first drink, you have no idea what's going to happen next. Like you could have one more drink or you could have 10 more drinks, but you can't with certainty say what's going to happen once you have that, that first drink. Mm -hmm. So when did you find out about adult child? Because I I feel like you already knew about it before I started my podcast, right? Yes. 
I was about six months sober and had just finished the steps. (laughs) Why didn't you clue me in? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had started going to Al-Anon and working the steps in Al-Anon at about six months sober. That's amazing. My sponsor, my first sponsor, she said, you got all these issues, girl, like you need Al-Anon as much as you need AA. And so I spent about a year in Al-Anon, like consistently. And then I had heard about, you know, adult child, like the ACA book and had looked into some meetings, uh, read the laundry list, totally identified, but I was also doing, you know, between sponsoring women, going to Al-Anon, I had to just kind of yeah, pick, pick a lane, pick a lane and stick with it. And I've been in therapy and marriage counseling for the entirety of our marriage. So, um, but we do talk a lot about the adult child stuff, even though I'm not sober when you got married about a year and a half. Okay. And how long had Byron been sober then? He was a new kid. He was new, right? Oh, same. same. Yeah. He was about, yeah, he was almost two years sober when we got married. I had just, um, (laughs) I had just gotten roped into another shit situation. And I thought I was very spiritual at this time. Like me and God, we're, we're good. And, um, I'd gone out with somebody a couple times and was talking to this person and he just filled me with a load of shit, like how I was, you know, going to be his person and, you know, just Mm -hmm. all kinds of crazy Yeah. Yeah. And so when that ended, it was very quick. It was very abrupt. So by the time I met Byron, I literally was wearing like this holy um, tank top that I had just like walked the bridges in. So I'm like sweaty. I hadn't showered yet. I go to this meeting and we go to lunch at Firehouse. And I was like, I am not playing house. I am dating for marriage. I am not going to let you in my house. I am not going to sleep with you. I am saving myself (laughs) for marriage at this point. I literally was like, if that's not what you're looking for, I am not the right person to talk to. And then you immediately went to the courthouse and got a marriage license? Yeah, pretty Pretty much. much. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, okay, I'm in. So then did you guys start trying to have kids right away? No, that was one of the deal breakers for me was I I said I was done having kids because at this point, Mallory was like 10. And I had said like, okay, I'm not going to have a 10 year old and a newborn. We're just not doing that. And so I knew he wanted to have more kids. You know, he had an 11 year old and, um, but he was fine with it. He's like, it's you. I love you. As long as I get to spend my life with you, I don't care that we, that you don't want to have kids. So I was like, okay, cool. Totally not thinking about it for over a year. Our first year of marriage was awful. Like really, really, really hard. I don't know how we stayed together. He actually, our church friends were just amazing. Like telling us how hard it is. And well, especially when you date for what, three months. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, so ultimately we both wanted to be in it. That's why we married so quickly anyway. And so it was just, we didn't know how to do the work. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, so I had this awful accident, shattered my leg 
I couldn't uh, walk for like, or drive for like six months. So, wow. so it was pretty traumatic. So I'm like doing a lot of self-reflection during this time about my perfectionism, about my workaholicism, you know, thinking that I'm this spiritual, awesome person, but realizing that I'm still very sick in that I don't have boundaries with myself. I'm struggling with self-care, self-love. So I'm having all of this stuff that I'm working through. And my husband is just amazing. You know, he's, you know, taking care of me and doing the laundry and like loving me like a, a good husband should. And I was like, I want to have a baby with this man. Like I didn't get to experience this. Like I am in love with him and like, how cool would it be to like get to have a kid that's both of us and raise that kid together? Like that was my dream. And so it was like, I realized that dream again that I had stuffed away, like that I wasn't going to be good enough because I think one of the reasons that I had decided not to have another kid is because I didn't want to fuck up a kid. Like I didn't think I deserved that I was healthy or whole enough and that I would just mess somebody up. Like, and I couldn't handle that. So then I was like, oh my gosh, I want to have a kid with you. <laughs> like, Let's do this. And um, so as soon as I made that decision, I went to the doctor, got the IUD out and we started right away. And then um, we got pregnant right away. And it was like the happiest time of my life because I was trying to get pregnant and I wanted it. And then I was about eight weeks and uh, I had the miscarriage. And I just, I was like not prepared, not at all. You know, I'd never tried to get pregnant. And so Byron didn't know what to do with that. He was sad for me, but no one really knew how to like love me during that time. Everybody's like, you know, yeah, it'll happen when it's time and blah, blah, blah. But I became obsessed with getting pregnant again. It was like, I couldn't heal until I got what I wanted. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'm that, that impatient, like I want it yesterday. And so when I got it and then it was ripped from me, like two months into it, it was like hell. It, it really was like hell. Like, God, why the hell did you, you know, I didn't want to have kids. Now I do. And then you give me the kid and then you take it away from me. And I was just angry and hurt. And then every month, every month would start to get my period I would like be just angry again angry again and this went on for well over a year because we were trying and then I was like temperature and yeah it just never had occurred to me that I might not be able to have another kid but then that's all I could think about was like okay I'm I'm not able to have a kid you know and so coming to terms with that like okay I guess we're back to square one again. Like we don't want to have a kid. We're, we can't have a kid. So I finally, finally had gotten to that point where I'm like, okay, 
I'm going to focus on me. I'm going to go to school. I started seminary. Uh, we bought this nice house and we started renovating that. And, you know, life just went on and it was like, cool. We're, we're, we're in a good place. Like we have this beautiful house. That's my project. That's my baby, you know? And, um, then I got pregnant again and, um, it was a shock, like, cause we had been trying for so long. And so it was 2017 and we were pregnant for 11 weeks. And so I was showing, you know, everybody pretty much knew cause yeah. And I was ecstatic and, uh, yeah. And the miscarriage was awful, awful. It was, uh, this situation where, I started bleeding and they didn't know whether it was, I was having the miscarriage. So, you know, go to the doctor's office and they do the ultrasound and the heart's still beating. And so they're like, you may or may not, you know, but I was bleeding very heavily, but they're like, your baby's still alive. You know, you, you could just bleed and then whatever. So I went home to bed rest and, um, they were going to check me out again, I guess on Monday or, you know, just see how it went. Um, but then I started really cramping and really contracting, uh, in the middle of the night. And I was so not prepared. Um, one, I was in extreme pain. Like I didn't realize until later that I was like in labor. labor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so then when I delivered the baby, I started screaming, you know, because, you know, you see the pictures of what an 11 week old penis looks like. You don't realize it's a baby with a head and with mm. you know, legs and arms. And this is in your living room. No, this was in my, I was in the shower cause I was bleeding. So I was like in so much pain. I literally was like in the fetal position on my shower floor you know, and I delivered this baby alone in the middle of the night and I woke my husband up screaming. I'm like, I don't want it to go down the drain. I don't want it to, I don't want to put it on the shower floor again. You know, like we have to put the baby in something like, I don't know what to do with it. I don't want to flush it down the toilet. And so he is hysterical because there's just, I mean, it's bloody and it's, and I'm crying and, you know, in pain. And then he's like, what am I going to do with this? And so, you know, the fact that he saw it, that traumatized him, he was like, I cannot get that vision out of my head, you know, and he found, you know, a Tupperware container. Mm. And we ended up taking um, that baby to get genetic testing to see, you know, if we had some answers, you know, since it was the second miscarriage and we had, had you know, at that point after a year, of trying like consistently you're you're considered like um it's a it's a it's a fertility issue like you're infertile i guess after a year of trying um so we were hoping for some answers but there was no abnormal like no chromosomal abnormalities or any of that so that was hard you know just all of it and um and then you know i did i had the the after birth you know which you're not prepared for any of that. Like, cause when you go to the hospital and have a baby, you know, that all happens. And so 
I hate to say luckily, but that miscarriage where I was able to have the full birth, like prepared me for the next miscarriage that I had had, um, where it was an incomplete, uh, and, and I did not uh, get rid of, I, I did have the baby at home. This was a couple, this was years later. Um, but then I ended up having to go, um, have a DNC where they hospitalized me and had to get, you know, the, the rest. Um, yeah. And how long were you pregnant? So then that was a third one. That was a third miscarriage and I was 15 weeks. So, um, I, and we had already named her, um, it wasn't quite 15 weeks, somewhere around 14, 15 weeks, but, um, yeah, once you hit the 12 week mark and you know, the sex and you're like, the, all the tests came back and said that we're, we're good. We're healthy. Um, that was, that was a different experience for me because we, I started bleeding. We went to the, um, the doctor, they did the ultrasound and right away, um, there was no heartbeat. And I'm like, well, can you take me to the, to like, can you fix this? Like, you mean you're sending me home with a dead baby? Like you literally are like, what? I I have to leave Mm. now. You just told me that my baby's inside of me and not alive. Um, and they're like, well, we'll schedule the DNC for, you know, whatever date if you don't deliver. And so I had the miscarriage. I delivered the baby on that night. And then, um, and then they did the DNC the next morning. This this pregnancy and the last pregnancy, well, I guess especially this third one, are you just in like a dysregulated state the whole time? Just like worried about, am I going to have a miscarriage? Um, okay. So the second one, the second miscarriage, the, the baby before Isla, um, that one, I had just like had that sigh of relief, like the first you know, because I had been eight weeks pregnant before. So it's like for that, until I got to the ninth week, I was like in that place of like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You know, like I have to be careful, like driving, you know, eating, like, oh, can I eat that? Like, you know, we don't want to have ingestion. We don't, you know, we better be taking our prenatals. There's just this as a perfectionist already, there's this hyper vigilant, like, Mm -hmm. um, sense of anxiety for me. And so with, with the second one, I was there because I was still very raw about that first one. Like it just was, you know, and then the second one, I really had gotten to a place for a couple of weeks where I was like, I'm just happy and I'm positive and feeling like, okay, you know, if, if this baby's going to have a chance, I have to think of it as good and positive. And I can't just focus on the rainbow baby before. So after that second one, did you do any therapy? Yeah, we were, my husband and I have, have been seeing the same therapist for our marriage since we got married. So like that never ended. So when, when we were going through some of that stuff, 
because we were going through it together, we worked on it in therapy or, you know, every week, but together we were not in separate therapy at that point. So then talk about pregnant again. Oh, with Isla? No, no, no. With your daughter, your three-year-old. Oh, no, no. We had, we had Aiden before we had Isla. Oh, I don't think I realized that. Okay. But you didn't talk about that. (laughs) I did. I I did. I skipped because we were talking about the miscarriage. Sorry. Yeah, no, I did have um, Aiden and that, that pregnancy was very scary. Very scary. Um, so how many years after your second miscarriage was that? That I got pregnant right away. Wow. After the second miscarriage. Okay. Yeah. Because the doctor said, one, there was no cro- abnormal chromosomes and two, like you're most fertile and most susceptible to getting pregnant again. Right afterwards. Trying right away. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we had stopped trying, gotten pregnant with the first miscarriage, and then started trying again um, after the second miscarriage, got pregnant with Aiden. I was a mess. I was a mess um, a lot with, with Aiden, like very nervous. And I was traumatized by that, that last miscarriage, and as was Byron. Byron was a total train wreck um, after the this where he saw the baby. I can imagine. So do you want to talk about the the origin? And because I feel like you are very divinely led to your project that you're launching now, kind of similarly to, to how I was led to this podcast. Yes. So after the third um, miscarriage, which was Isla, we had already named her. I had bought wings for her nursery the same week that she that I lost her. What year was this? This was in 2019. And so, yeah, my daughter, uh, my fifth, she was 15 at the time. She was going to get her learner's permit. And I had started, we found out that we were miscarrying on my daughter's 15th birthday. Mm. And Mallory was like, please do not do this again. Like after it was all said and done, she's like, please, I can't, I can't handle it. You know, mom's crying, Byron's upset. Um, and, and we had a baby at that point. So yeah, awful. You know, the fact that it was on Mallory's birthday just made it even worse. Mm-hmm. And so I had said the only way I'm really going to be okay with not having another baby with Byron, with us quitting is if I, share the message about and educate people about miscarriage because I had no clue that I was a delivering babies B, you know, the emotional fallout, like the weight gain, the hormones, the depression, all of it. And so I was committed because, you know, people get sad when you have, a, a, when you deliver a live baby or even a stillborn there were so many resources but when i was looking for what do i do like how do i how do i cremate this this baby now like you know i had another child that i was not going to send for genetic testing i i wanted something better for her and there was really nothing and the and the doctors were terrible they were just um and I went to, I went to a couple different OBGYNs. The way that I felt was like, get over it. This happens to one in four. 
you're not abnormal. All of this is normal. I'm like, okay, but none of this feels normal (laughs) to me. And I am a mess. And you telling me that I'm normal does not help me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And so where do you go when you're feeling like you're a crazy person because you're not okay? I was not okay for a really long time. And so I was committed to sharing my story and to helping women. Mm-hmm. So the way that happened was my pastor, God, love him, he came um, after one of my um, miscarriages to my house and I was so uncomfortable because I was bleeding so badly. And I was like, I love you, but I am so mortified that you're here. Right now. <laughs> you know, like, like I am just like bleeding like a stuck pig and I don't want to get up and in case there's blood or like, and I, and I realized like, there was nobody, no female in leadership that could have gone, that could have come to my house and made me feel loved by our church. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was just so many things that, that played into it. So my pastor started sending women and, or couples to us, husband and I, who were dealing with miscarriage, like, Hey, call, call them, call her. She knows what you're going through. You can ask her questions, you know, is this normal? And so during COVID, the first couple that he sent to us, we, you know, we bonded and talked. She almost died actually Mm -hmm. um, from the severe bleeding that she had. So that happened. Then my, um, my mother-in-law moved in with us. She was dealing with pancreatic cancer. And so I was watching her deal with cancer, just feeling like she wasn't beautiful. Um, She lost her hair. You know, she didn't have enough energy to put on makeup. She lost her eyebrows. Um, And, but I did notice that she would get her fingernails done and their toenails done regularly, even when she was sick as a dog, because it made her feel good. And she, you know, every time she'd come back, I was able to get my fingernails done. Look, don't you like the color? And um, it was just something she needed. And so that, that made an impact on me. Well, the second woman that my pastor sent to me um, was an esthetician and her baby had, she had lost a baby at about eight weeks mm-hmm. and hadn't told anyone. And so her and her husband were going through it and she had just so much heartache, so much grief, but she was able to tell me about it, share it, half her load and have me saying, oh, me too. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I felt that way too. Oh, I was angry. Oh yeah. I would question God. Oh, you know, I, all of the things, and I can't even think of all of the things right now, but, uh, she said, this is so helpful. And so we, we met every week for coffee and I would say, so how are you doing today? You know? And so at one of our coffee appointments, she said, oh my gosh, I just had a woman last night who came in for a facial and we were talking about her health history and she had just had a miscarriage. And so we had cried together and she said, and I know it was like a God thing that she, um, came at the last appointment because I was able to actually cry with her and actually, um, spend time with her and share my own stuff and give her all the love and all the facial that she needed. And it came to me like a ton of bricks. Like, this is what 
women need. We need to not feel guilty caring for ourselves. And we need to take it to another level of like being loved on when we're going through hell. And so miscarriage for me was hell for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And if somebody just told me like, it's going to be okay. And was doing what they could to make me feel better about myself. Like that. I looked better that I, you know, when you look better, you feel better. Mm -hmm. And um, so it just became really clear uh, that that was where I was being led was to care for women uh, in that way. And so that's how I remain nonprofit. I said, we're going to do this. Um, my, my partner in crime, I guess now her, her name is Mirandi. I said, do you care if I run with this? Do you care if I start looking for a spa? Do you, you know, will you do facials? Cause I don't, you know, I'm not an esthetician. I'm like, can we get <laughs> therapists? Can we get, you know, can we get people and just make this happen? She was like, I'm in. And so like the next day I'm like, sending her a property that I'm buying to remodel. And she's like, oh my gosh, so we're really doing this. And I'm like, hell yeah, we're doing this. It's so exciting. And so it's going to be, it's a nonprofit, but then it's a for-profit spa where other people can go. But I guess kind of talk about more of like the philanthropic aspect of it. Yeah, well, the goal was always the nonprofit piece. Um, but when I ta- started talking to marketing people, attorneys, CPAs, uh, actually one of the attorneys that I talked with, he was like, don't do a nonprofit, don't do a nonprofit, you know, it's such a mess, you know, and it, it was really disheartening to hear, you know, that he was so like, it's just a lot of hoops and this, that, and the other. And then after speaking with some other people, they said, you know, the nonprofit doesn't own anything. So since you're going to be so financially invested, um, you really should have a for-profit spa and you're going to earn more money for your nonprofit by donating through like a a corporation um, and some of the proceeds for the the spa will go to the nonprofit. So uh, it started out as just a nonprofit and then turned into, um, you know, nobody wants to go to a nonprofit spa only uh, <laughs> women who are used to, um, to go into Ponte Vedra Inn and club uh, are not going to be like interested in coming to my, my little luxury nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, um, you know, Isla day spa will be very beautiful and luxurious and in our neighborhood and have women that are just there to care. And when women, um, go there they feel good because they're giving back because they're gonna help another woman who's suffering get treatment get counseling get um spa services whatever that woman needs i mean some women will not necessarily need uh the financial piece of it Mm -hmm. but just Mm -hmm. knowing that there's a safe space where they can go um that's where the board will assess like what the best fit is because, um, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at, at everybody's unique story and just helping women when they need it the most. So how can people get involved? They can go on, uh, ilamae.org. It's I S L A M A E.org. And they can donate now. They can nominate a woman who they know 
especially it, right now it's more in the Jacksonville area, but we do online uh, support groups. So if they wanted to nominate somebody just for like the peer support, they could do that. Uh, if they're in the Jacksonville area, the spa should be opening in February of 2023. We're waiting on permits now, but uh, I think we're at the very end. The contractor has everything like destroyed and he's just waiting for that permit to start mm -hmm. uh, the actual build out. And so I'm very excited to have a, a space, uh, a beautiful spa. And so if they want to donate now, um, we're working on getting counselors for some of these women. Um, you know, there, there's lots to do in Jacksonville specifically. We're going to need people to help with, um, you know, gardening, people to be at the front, just loving on some of these women who are dealing with grief, um, checking in, prayer warriors, if that's what you're into, there'll be lots of opportunities for hands-on experience and volunteer work once the spa is open. So have there been any significant ahas or through lines as it relates to processing the trauma of your miscarriages and the experience of being an adult child? Yes. <laughs> um, I realized because of my relationship with my parents and I mean, probably more specifically, my mother, mm -hmm. um, there were things that were allowed in our home. There were things that um, are just not how I would raise my child, things that I would say or do. Um, and so being pregnant so many times and feeling children in me and, and knowing my love like from right away. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine my mom, this is, this is random. And I really, I hope my mom's not going to hate that. I <laughs> oh gosh. Cause I love my mom. I, I really do. But my mom had written a pregnancy journal to me that I found when I was young. Mm -hmm. I don't, I can't remember whether she actually gave it to me or not, but in the journal, which is written to me that I have in my possession she wrote that if my biological father had not agreed to raise me, she would have aborted me. And I can't imagine ever telling my child that like at all. And like going through this experience um, and seeing children, like uh, I'm not making this an abortion issue at all. Um, but just for me, knowing what I've seen. Mm -hmm. um, I just can't imagine some of the things, you know, I, I'm like a protector. Like I realize how valuable life is, how precious, how, but I just don't think that my parents have ever been capable of realizing how fragile mm -hmm. and um, just, yeah, I just don't think that they, they valued their life enough to value mine, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Although I know that they love me as much as they're capable of, I just don't think that they have loved themselves or valued their own lives enough. Um, and so the miscarriages have just been a 
reaffirmate, you know, they've affirmed how, you know, what we start from and that it's a process and growth. And I mean, there's so much, hopefully that answered the question a little bit. It did. What, so what is your, if you want to talk about it, it's okay if you don't, but what does your relationship with your mother look like today? We get along great. Um, we, I'm very careful about what I say to my mom. Mm-hmm. There's still this anxiety that I'm going to say something wrong. Um, there's still this adult child. Um, there's there's always been boundaries for me. Um, you know, like my kids don't spend the night with grandma. Mm-hmm. My kids mm-hmm. don't go anywhere with grandma. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just because I'm not comfortable. Like I have a way that I want to raise my children. And I know that they're safe when they're with me. And, um, growing up in an adult child relationship, it just, there was never any security. Mm -hmm. And so I love my mom, uh, as she is, I accept her for who she is. I see her as a, as an adult child herself. She, she just never loved herself enough to really do the hard work and, and it's sad. So I just love her as much as I can. How do you view the miscarriages now? Do you feel like you harbor any resentment still towards your higher power regarding it? No, not at all. Not at all. I, there were times that I was furious, but I see for anybody who has a relationship with a higher power, when I've experienced God. I've experienced God's love, his grace. Like he's led me down this path. He's put people in front of me. He's given me opportunities. I mean, so once I look at the package, like if I want to just focus on not getting this, you know, Isla or, or, or people dying or the loss, the pain, Uh, which when you're in it, that's all you really can focus on. Mm -hmm. But um, once I've been able to move past it and I look at it all, I just see so much love. And I mean, this is what needed to happen. This is the whole thing is just made beautiful in Isla May. Like I don't have a baby Isla May, mm-hmm. but Isla May is already working and changing lives of women right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, one of the women that I've been working with, I was sharing my insecurities about all of this. And, um, she said, well, if Isla May never impacts any other woman, uh, I'll tell you right now that it has changed my life. And it has set me on a path of healing that I did not think possible. Mm. And there was another woman who was also in our support group that was nominated. And she said, same, same here that um, if, if we're, if we're it, um, you've changed our lives. Mm. Well, that's so beautiful. You're an amazing woman. You're such an inspiration and thank you for the, the service that you're bringing and the healing that you're bringing to, to this community and for giving voice to something that isn't discussed as much as it should be. Well, I'm really excited that you're, that you see the, 
the importance of it too. And that, I mean, we both, I mean, to me, it's not a coincidence that God placed us as our higher power where we both are on similar paths. And so you, you, you kind of started before I did and, and, um, made me see that it's possible. Like your podcast talking about like changing your whole career. It's, it resonated with me. And so it's cool. Mm. Well, this has been beautiful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, that wraps up today's episode. I hope that you heard something that can help you on your own journey. And I know that you did. Thanks again to Heather. Go check out the show notes for links to uh, her website and, and all that jazz. So yeah, that was great. Um, I, I got back to San Francisco last night. So I've been living in Florida for the past four months and just got back to San Francisco and forgot how tiny my apartment is. So I am back to living in a box essentially. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. And, um, don't think I have anything else to, to, um, share with y'all. I don't have any good dating stories. Uh, but hopefully I'll have some good ones soon. And that's all. Okay. Love you guys. See you next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw, super vulnerable, super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a good day. I promise. Yeah.